Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 3. We just finished up with the Sabbath controversy where Jesus, where Jesus' disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath because they plucked grain in the grain field as they walked by. Jesus finishes that chapter up by saying, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, as he proved to his detractors and his disciples' accusers that no, the law had not been broken. So now we take up with another Sabbath controversy in Mark chapter 3, starting reading verses 1 and 2. Now he entered the synagogue again. We're not sure which synagogue that is. It might be at Capernaum. It might be somewhere else. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. The they, as we'll see later, is the Pharisees who were following him around trying to find a reason to accuse him. And here we see they were watching him closely to see whether he would eat on the Sabbath. In other words, they were looking for a reason, as one translation puts it. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were not interested in an objective evaluation of the facts. Notice that they were not doubting that Jesus could heal. They'd already seen enough of that. They knew he could heal. Well, the question was, would he heal on the Sabbath? And this is something for those who deny the miracles of Jesus. If Jesus didn't do those miracles, why would not his blood enemies ever have complained about these fake miracles? Why would they have not have said, he's not the Messiah, he's not doing miracles? They never said that because there was too much evidence. Too many people who had seen the miracles done, they couldn't deny it. We go to Mark chapter 3, verse 3. He told the man with a paralyzed hand, stand before us. Now, we're going to see when we go to Matthew and Luke in the parallel passages that Jesus got into a little controversy with the Pharisees, shut them up with their own law, made them look like fools. We'll get to that in a minute. That having been taken care of, he now tells the paralytic to stand before us. Now, why did he tell the paralytic, the man with a paralyzed hand, why did he, why did he say stand before the crowd? Here's four possible reasons, all of which are probably true. First of all, it would raise attention of the people to the miracle that was about to occur. It would elicit, secondly, it would elicit pity of the crowd when they saw the withered hand. Third thing it would do, it would show how hard-hearted the Pharisees were because they did not want to see such a pitiful man healed. And the fourth thing that it would do is prove there was no fraud involved because everybody could see the miracle was being done. And by the way, this is why... I think that every person doing miracles today, and they do do miracles today, cessationists, you are living in a box with blinders around your eyes if you think they're not being done today. But I would say that anybody that does do miracles today, you need to do such miracles in a way that they can be easily verified and attested to. Otherwise, you're going to have John MacArthur calling you a, or Todd Friel calling you a fringe winding. Verse 4, Mark chapter 3. Then he, Jesus, said to them, that's either the Pharisees that were tracking him or the whole crowd at the synagogue is not really clear, but I think it's the Pharisees. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, what Jesus is doing here is using a little bit of irony. He says, Well, you know, I'm trying to heal somebody. You're trying to kill me. Well, what's legal? Healing or killing on the Sabbath? You tell me, according to your law, according to your traditions and to your Pharisaic rabbinic teachings, what's legal, to do good or to kill? Well, obviously, that was a little sarcastic, a little ironic, and it shut them slam up. Verse 5 in chapter 3 of Mark. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, notice that Jesus was angry at the Pharisees' attitude toward him. 
and he had good reason to be. That's a classic example of righteous anger. You cannot say that anger per se is evil. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. We, we have an example of our sinless Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being righteously angry at something. But notice also that his anger was accompanied with sorrow. And that's kind of the way we ought to be. We ought to be angry at the people in New York who say you can kill babies up to the moment of their birth. The infanticidalist in New York City. Yeah, we ought to be angry with them in New York State. But we ought to also feel sorry for them because they're, they're looking for judgment. They're asking for it. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now the Herodians, prop, there's a bunch of options as to who these Herodians are. Nobody knows for sure. I'm just going to assume it's a group of Jews who are in favor of sucking up to the Roman Empire because Herod did that, Herod the Great, and Herod Antipas. All of the Herods were Roman rulers who were... What, how can you say it? They were they were Jews, proselytized Jews who were ruling under the authority of the Roman Empire. So that's probably who these were. And the Pharisees, of course, did not like being ruled by the Roman Empire because the Romans were constantly trampling on the law of Moses with their pagan stuff. So the Pharisees didn't like them. But here, as is usual, Jesus caused so much hatred and so much opposition that natural enemies allied against him. We see in several places the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who also hated each other, they were allied against Jesus. And now the Pharisees and the Herodians, unlikely allies, are allied against Jesus. And they are thinking about how they're going to destroy him. Now, were they excited because a man had been healed? The man had been paralyzed with a withered hand. Those Pharisees didn't give a flying flip rip about the fact that a miraculous healing had been done. All they could think about is, well, you broke our law, you broke our law. Now, did he break the Pharisees' law? Well, the Pharisees' law said that you could heal on the Sabbath if it was necessary to save a life. But if the person wouldn't die on the Sabbath and could make it to the next day, you weren't supposed to heal. Well, in that case, so Jesus did break the Pharisees' law. Not the Mosaic law, but the Pharisees' law. Because the man with the withered hand was obviously going to live through Saturday, he could make it to Sunday, and so Jesus could have waited around to heal him on Sunday. But Jesus was making it very clear, I'm not bound by your stupid, idiotic, rabbinic traditions. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he healed the man. Now let's go to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, pick up a few more details. On another Sabbath, he went into a synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Well, right now we see it's his right hand. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, notice that the Pharisees expected Jesus to heal. They weren't concerned about whether he could heal or not heal. They knew he was healing. Nobody could deny that. They showed no deference to the fact that a man is going around working incredible miracles. They didn't show any, any surprise or any humility about that fact. They didn't show any compassion to the man with the withered hand. All they were cared about was, was it healed on the Sabbath? Luke chapter 6, verses 8, but he knew their thoughts. How did he know their thoughts? Well, some people say through the Holy Spirit or because he's divine. This is the typical question that arises when Jesus does something that could, could be done either by his humanity or his divinity. I think it was his humanity here because it's, I think it's pretty obvious that these people were full of it. They were trying to get him. They, weren't, they, they were evil. So I don't think he needed divine help to know that these people were out to get him. Now, Jesus said, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? Well, in the Old Testament law of Moses, there was never a wrong day to do something truly good. The Pharisees' legal traditions had totally twisted the Old Testament law. Their laws promoted evil, not good. 
Now, their own law said there were many things which they allowed on the Sabbath, which otherwise were not lawful. For example, when life was in danger, you could heal. I'm going to quote you from John Gill in just a minute. Some rabbinic sayings that said if, if somebody's life was in danger, or if an ox caught in a pit or in a well was in danger, you could feed the ox. You could, you could pull the ox out if he couldn't make it till Sunday. The Jews themselves took Jericho on the Sabbath day. That was considered necessity. So the, even the Pharisees had the exception of necessity in their prohibitions against doing things on the Sabbath. Now one more point here in Luke chapter 6, verse 10. When he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So Jesus tells the man, I want you to stretch out your hand. The man immediately did what Jesus asked and obeyed him. He had faith and he had obedience. Faith and obedience would get us a long way. Jesus tells you to do something, even if you think it might seem a little silly. Well, because the man could say, well, you know, my hand's paralyzed, Jesus. It's withered. How can you say to a disabled man, stretch out your hand? I'm offended. If he was an American today, that's what he would say. But the man didn't quibble with Jesus. He just stretched his hand out. He stretched out a withered hand to show that he was healed. Now, see, it didn't work this way. Jesus takes his hand. He restores it. It's it's healed. And then after it was healed, he stretched out his hand. It didn't work that way. He stretched out his hand first. And as he was stretching out his hand, it was healed. So my point here is, if you want Jesus to do something that goes beyond the natural, something supernatural for you, go ahead and do what he says. Now, I will say this. A lot of the faith people say, you know, do something like that. But they don't. They leave out an important part. You have to do something at the behest of Jesus. You have to be told by the Holy Spirit, by God, to do something. Then if he tells you to do it, do it. But don't just go around saying, I'm going to do something crazy, and that's going to make God do something miraculous for me. That's making God into a genie. Jesus in the bottle. You rub it, and out he comes and says, Yes, Massa. Yes, Massa Dan, what can I do for you? No, that's not the way it works. Luke chapter 6, verse 11, But they were filled with rage, that's the Pharisees, and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So here you have the Pharisees filled with rage and trying to kill somebody on the Sabbath. Did they break the Sabbath by trying to kill somebody on the Sabbath and being filled with rage on the Sabbath? Jesus, on the other hand, on the Sabbath, he healed a disabled man. And this is why rabbinic Judaism stunk to high heaven. All right, let's move to Matthew 12, starting with verse 9, as we pick up some more details in our parallel passage here. Moving on from there, that would be from the grain fields where the disciples had plucked corn and gotten the Pharisees all bent out of shape with them for allegedly violating the Sabbath, which they did not do. He entered their synagogue. As I said, the synagogue is ambiguous. We don't know where it is, although some people say it's Capernaum because afterwards he withdrew to the sea in mark 3 verse 7 which i haven't gotten to yet jesus departed with his disciples to the sea and a large crowd followed from galilee and judea and so forth so it could very well be that same synagogue at capernaum where jesus cast out a demoniac one sunday but i don't know why saturday but nobody complained about that at that time but they did complain about this man with a withered hand assuming that's so let's assume it's the synagogue at capernaum even though we don't know for sure now I told you I'd read an example from Gill of what was allowed on, on the Sabbath. Well, first of all, my NIV study Bible says, In general, rabbis permitted healing on the Sabbath if it were feared that the man would die the next day. And the man with the paralyzed hand is not going to die the next day, so Jesus did break the traditions of the Pharisees. But, however, having said that, we need to point out that the Pharisees themselves were not as tight as they could have been on that. They made exceptions for necessity. Here's an example of rabbinic teaching on the subject of healing on the Sabbath. Quote, this is from John Gill. 
Quote, if a man had an ailment in his throat, he might not gargle it with oil, but he might swallow a large quantity of oil, and if he was healed, he was healed, i.e., it was very well, it was no breach of the Sabbath. In other words, you can't gargle, but you can swallow. Now, what the distinction is, I don't know, but the rabbis said there's a big spiritual distinction between gargling and swallowing. Gargling is a no-no. Swallowing is spiritual and perfectly okay. They may, not, they may not chew mastic nor rub the teeth with spice. I don't know what mastic is, nor rub the teeth with spice on the Sabbath day when it is intended for healing. But if it is intended for the savor of his mouth, it's free. In other words, you can chew spice if you like the taste, but you can't rub your teeth with it if you're trying to heal your teeth with it. How stupid. It's obviously healing somebody is not doing what the Old Testament calls servile labor, doing your, your, your occupation in order to try to... to live your 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 vocation that's what it's talking about it's not talking about healing somebody on the sabbath this is another sabbath day by the way then the when the man was healed of the demoniac it says on another sabbath in luke 6 6 now here's an, uh, one little point here there are possibly two reasons why jesus even entered that synagogue did he go in there in order to cure the man with a withered hand, or did he go in there to worship in the synagogue to teach and then saw the man with a withered hand after he got there? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. If if he had not planned on healing the man, he didn't shy away from doing it when the opportunity arose. That's for sure. Matthew twelve eleven through 12 says this, and this is added to Mark's account. But he said to them, What man among you, if he had a sheep that, fall, that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Even the Pharisees would take their sheep that fell in a pit and lift it out. Now, the Pharisees actually had a law that said if the sheep could live, let me find that law for you. Somewhere in my notes here, where is it? Here's the rabbinic rule cited by Gill. If a beast fall into a ditch or a pool of water, if food can be given it where it is, they feed it till the going out of the Sabbath. But if not, bolsters and pillars, pillows may be brought and put under it, and if it can come out, it may come out. In other words, if that animal can live till Sunday, leave it in the pit. Feed him to keep him alive until Sunday, then pull him out. But if he's not going to live till Sunday, you can pull him out on Saturday. So they had a, an exception of necessity here. And so when Jesus is, and assuming this rule was before the time of Christ, Jesus was saying, look, your own law says it's all right to pull an ox out of the ditch or a your, or a sheep out of a pit. Your own rules say it's okay to do that. And so now you're complaining because I'm healing somebody on the Sabbath. What's more valuable, that sheep that you let people pull out of the pit or this man with a withered hand? Now, the rabbis could have said, yeah, but we want to keep the sheep in the pit if he can live until Sunday. And you could take that man with a withered hand and just let him wait around for another day until it's Sunday. Then you could heal him on Sunday. You wouldn't be breaking the Sabbath. But I don't, Jesus is not going to do that. He, he's not going to kowtow to these stupid rabbinic traditions. All right, let's move to chapter 3, verses 7 through 8 as we move into another incident in Mark chapter 3. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed him. We learn from the parallel passage in Matthew 12 that when Jesus became aware that the Pharisees and the Herodians were coming to get him, then he departed with his disciples to the sea. And this shows that Jesus was not on a suicide mission. He, did, he took natural precautions to get away from his enemies. And so he headed for the sea, out away from the synagogue. And a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. This shows that Jesus was pulling people 
from all kinds of areas, not just around Galilee. Judea is from the south, and Jerusalem in the south. Idumea is even further south of Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. Beyond the Jordan is to the east of the Jordan River, and around Tyre and Sidon is to the northwest of Israel on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea in present-day Lebanon. So they were coming from all over the place. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing, the healings. They wanted to get healed, and they wanted to hear his teaching. Mark chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd would not crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Notice they weren't even bothering to ask him. They were just touching him. Jesus had so much power so much divine power flowing out of him that he was just healing scadzillions of people all over the place. Now, people argue over, well, was it everybody who came? I believe it was everybody who came, but it didn't mean all the people in the areas around Galilee because not everybody was sick, and not everybody who was sick managed to come into his presence. But they, if they touched him, if they got to where they could touch him, they would get healed. This touching idea is also in Mark chapter 6, three chapters later, verse 56. Wherever he would go, into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the tassel of his robe. And everyone who touched it was made well. Of course, you had to go do something. You had to show your, that you believed in him. You had to go touch. Mark chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And of course, those that are crying out are the demons inside the possessed, not the possessed people themselves. They fell down kind of like in worship, huh? Sounds like it. They fried down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Of course, they're not worshiping him, but they're acknowledging him as superior. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. All right, now, first of all, you are the Son of God. Here we have demons acknowledging that Jesus, acknowledging the truth. The demons are actually speaking the truth. You are the Son of God. Why were they doing this? Well, one idea is that old ancient idea that if you name something, you've got power over it. And this would fit in with the idea of Jesus telling them, shut up. He would strongly warn them not to make him known. In other words, be quiet, demons. Because he didn't want the demons to think that they had power over him by naming his name. That's one reason. Another reason is, this is the so-called messianic secret. Jesus didn't want the idea to get out, to be noised abroad, that he was the Messiah, that he was doing all this stuff, because pretty soon there would be a political movement, there would be massive people flocking in to join the kingdom of God, but it wouldn't be a spiritual kingdom of God. It would be a political messianic movement, a revolution. Let's get rid of the Germans. It's not the Germans, excuse me, the Romans. Let's get rid of the Romans. And he didn't want that because the Jews down in Jerusalem, they certainly didn't want it, especially the Sadducees. They didn't want the Romans to come in and take their kingdom away from them, which would happen if the ruling authorities let things get out of hand. And if political movements created such turmoil and commotion and riot that the Romans said, you know, you people can't govern down here. We're going to put somebody else in power. We might even send the troops in to control you down here. So he didn't want that to happen. He didn't want there to be a political uproar. He's trying to train his disciples. He's trying to explain about a spiritual kingdom. That's why he said don't make them known. That's one reason. Another reason why he didn't want demons saying you are the son of God is because that is inappropriate for a filthy, nasty demon to be stating the truth about Jesus. If he wants people to call him the Son of God, he wants people to do it, the Jews to do it, not demons. So those are three reasons. Number one, so that they would not think they had control over him by naming his name. Number two, so that uh, political revolution wouldn't prematurely scotch 
his spiritual kingdom. And number three, so that you wouldn't have some filthy, nasty demon proclaiming him as king. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. We'll start up with the next incident in Mark chapter 3. We'll hold that until the next audio. The parallel passage in Matthew 12 here does not have very much interesting information. It does add a quote from Isaiah, which I will mention. If you want to hear about this quote from Isaiah, you can listen to the audio in Matthew 12. It says, So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And that, of course, is referring to Jesus. And Jesus is showing that he fulfills Isaiah by by working all those miracles. He will not, Isaiah, Matthew 12 continues to quote Isaiah. He will not argue or shout. And no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. In other words, he's not going to be starting a revolution. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He's not going to, he's going to be so gentle, he's not even going to put out a smoldering wick, which means he's going to exercise no power. Breaking a bruised reed doesn't take a lot of power either. He's not going to do that until he has led justice to victory. That's when he's going to start exercising his power. The nations will put their hope in his name. And of course, when we see people coming from Idumea, Tyre, and Sidon, as we just mentioned, that's from outside of Israel. That's the nations are beginning to hope in his name. It has just occurred to me that perhaps this is why Matthew quoted from Isaiah here about Jesus not extinguishing a smoldering wick or breaking a bruised reed. It's because he was quiet about his messiahship at first until... He proclaimed justice to the nations, and this is at the earliest part of his ministry, and so it wasn't time yet for him to proclaim justice to the Gentiles and to everybody, because his kingdom hadn't gotten started yet, so he was quiet and gentle, and Jesus, that's why Jesus is telling, always telling people, don't talk about what's happened to you. All right, folks, that's the end of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through... 12. We'll take up Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and following in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.